Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Random Health-ish. I am your host, Dr. Gloria Stone Osbeck, and tonight we have a very special guest with us. Tonight we have Miss Tierra Tierra Harris. Let me slow down. <laughs> and Miss Harris is a respiratory therapist. So she is going to be giving us different tips and um, just telling us about her profession and what she does to give us a better understanding. And then she's also going to go into a little depth in depth talking about her husband and his spinal cord injury and how she has been able to take care of him as well. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Miss Harris with us tonight. Hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining the show tonight. Um, so let's just start out. Just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. All right. I am a respiratory therapist. My name is Tara Harris. I'm a respiratory therapist. I work at um, like a smaller community hospital in Pennsylvania. Um, I currently live in Delaware. I've been there for about 15 years. I started out as the equipment tech while I was a student, and then I just transitioned into a full-time therapist position, and I have been there ever since. I have worked all shifts, night shift, day shift, evening shift. Um, and outside of that, I have been married for seven years. Um, like you mentioned, my husband has a spinal cord injury, um, so I am his full-time caregiver, and we also have a three-and-a-half-year-old. Oh, wow. So you are busy, busy. <laughs> busy, busy and trying to figure out how to slow down. <laughs> yes. Now, what um, what city in Delaware are you in? We are in Claymont. So oh, we moved okay. here in 2019. Yeah, nice. we were here so that we can move into a ranch-style home that was accessible for him. So Absolutely. Here. We actually just moved from Wilmington uh, in oh, 2019. Okay. Yeah, so um, I was practicing there for a few years. So um so tell us so for people who may be watching who been, who may have never even heard of a respiratory therapist, um tell us a little bit about what that entails. Like what exactly do you do as a respiratory therapist? Okay, so it's not uncommon that people don't know what we do because I did not hear about respiratory therapists until I was in my second year of college trying to figure out what my major was going to be because getting into nursing was way too hard. And I was like, it's not that deep. I just wanted to help people. Yes. <laughs> um, so what respiratory therapists do is we focus mainly on the lungs. So what we do varies from something as simple as breathing exercises to maintaining ventilators. So in between that, you may have um, breathing treatments. You may have different modalities to keep you off of a ventilator. And that goes from the premature population to adolescents to adults as well. Okay. So our main focus is just the lungs. Yes. So like what are some conditions that you may treat? Like would like sleep apnea or things like that yes. kind of? So we, we treat sleep apnea, we treat COPD patients, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary um, disease patients. We treat asthmatics when it comes to premature babies because they come so early, their lungs aren't fully developed yet. And so we kind of have to be what they haven't had time to do yet. And so a lot of them may end up on ventilators. They may end up on what we call CPAP, uh, which is kind of how we treat sleep apnea for adult patients. And then you have different medications that can kind of help maintain the med maintain your lungs that'll kind of keep you stable, which can hopefully keep you out of the hospital. But if we end up having issues that um, that weren't enough, then we may see you in the hospital because we can give you more of that medication, but we can monitor you to make sure that you're handling in a way that's um, healthy 
and we can keep an eye on you in case things go wrong, as opposed to people over medicating at home. Yes. So um, with the, you know, with COVID having such a, an effect on the lungs and things of that nature, have you seen an increase in your patient base? Um, so COVID hit and we saw all COVID patients and almost none of our regular patients. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting. I don't know if I really can explain why. I think part of it was um, people being afraid to come into the hospital. Yes. I think part of it was people were a little bit more safe at home, so they weren't exposed to as many elements as they normally would be. Kids weren't in school, so they're not spreading germs. People were inside the home, so they're not exposed to outdoor elements such as pollution, um, allergies, things of that nature. Um, but because COVID was so big is so big and was still so unknown and unexplainable we saw a lot of people because it uh, that was something that was basically a respiratory disease that we kind of had to figure out as we went along because there was no handbook on how to treat covid patients and so what we ended up seeing was a lot of um older middle-aged adults we didn't really treat too many kids we may have saw a couple here and there but they weren't anything like how our adults presented and um because you probably had other underlying conditions that you may not have known about that may have went untreated, or you probably did know about, but didn't know that COVID was going to affect your body in the way that it did. Mm -hmm. We saw a lot of people who just had issues breathing. And so we had to decide and our, we had to, a lot of things varied from how they presented. So what can we do first? Because our main goal was to keep people off the ventilators if we could, because a lot of people unfortunately didn't survive coming off the ventilators. So we had to kind of work with what we had. So some people came in and what we would do was, okay, let's see how much oxygen you can survive off of without having to go on the ventilator. And then that would slowly increase. So maybe some high flow oxygen, which for us was up to 40 liters of oxygen up into your nose. But what it does is it kind of helps slow down that work of breathing. It kind of makes it a little bit easier for you to feel like you're catching your breath. Um, and from there, we try what we call BiPAP or CPAP, which the easiest way to describe it without getting super technical is kind of like the equivalent of putting your head out of a car window. But when you can't breathe, it feels really good to be able to have all of that air rushing yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And then a lot of people ended up on ventilators. And so once we were on a ventilator, we did we, we had to manipulate it in ways that kind of helped because the lungs ended up being really stiff. And so they were hard to ventilate. Um, we did a lot of proning, which is flipping patients into different positions to help their breathing. Um, and that's something that we recommend for people who are on ventilators or off ventilators because it just helped to not lay flat to just be able to kind of take that pressure off of feeling like you have that weight on your chest. Mm -hmm. So people will lay on their sides, one side versus the other, or just sitting straight up. Um, and every case we just went one by one and everyone we kind of treated the same but different based on what was happening. This so yeah, it was a lot of work. It was a really scary, yeah, very, like scary time. very scary. Did you guys have to like, you know, dress up and like, you know, put all the oh yeah. on? <laughs> so we actually got trained on how to use um we had got these um like covers that we used for like when they thought Ebola was coming back. Mm -hmm. So we had they're called pappers and we learned how to suit up in the pappers. We learned how to um take them off of each other clean them because it's a whole process to making sure you're safe taking it off so that you're not still spreading everything. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of us 
got into the habit of um, we changed our clothes before we left work because we in the beginning we had no clue what was happening, how it was going to affect everybody. And especially for me, I did not want to bring that home to my husband despite the court injury. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a lot of um, uh, headgear. So we would wear surgical caps. We started getting, we got a lot of stuff donated. So I'm grateful for the community who were able to kind of recognize the need. We had high school students that were making us face shields. We had people who just knew how to sew that were making us um, surgical caps. They were making us different. Um, they were like crocheting things to put on the back of our masks because we were now wearing masks all day long. We were going from just surgical masks all day long to N95s because you were going in so many intensive care rooms that were full of COVID patients that it was almost no point in taking it off because you were just going to go from one room to the next. People were wearing, some of us just wore booties over our shoes. Some people wore the really high booties that go all the way up to your knees that we kind of use for surgery patients. Yes. And we wore hospital gowns. Um, we went from disposables to reusables because supplies were running low. We went from, you you had your hook. This is where I'm going to put my stuff at. This is my, this is my section. Don't touch my <laughs> stuff. <laughs> And then as things changed, we just kind of, we changed with the process as things changed. And, um, you know, we just kind of did the best of what we had. And so sometimes we wore the same N95 all day long and then we wore, we would process it and we would wear it again for another day and process it and wear it again for another day. And we did that until we end up getting more supplies in that we, and that was just really recently, probably maybe January or February, we finally were able to stop processing our masks, but that was only for if you were a certain size yeah. because we didn't get enough in of both sizes for everybody to be able to stop processing their N95 masks. Wow. And so as a respiratory therapist, how did it affect your oxygen concentration? You know, just having to wear that N95 mask all day because I know just going in Walmart with my mask, I'm like, I can't breathe with this thing on my face. So like yeah, the, very, the very beginning, I I put a post up, I think on like Facebook and I'm like, you know how like your nose gets stuffed up and you, you don't appreciate like how you can breathe out of your nose until your nose is stuffed up. And that's what it felt like. It was like, I have to put this on and I have to wear this all day long and I'm not used to this. And how am I supposed to be able to like maintain this? It was very, if, at least for me, because I do have some sort of, I do have anxiety. Um, it, it does kind of trigger that anxiety because it be, it starts to feel so heavy. Like you start to feel like what is happening? What is going on? How am I going to do this? And then when we moved to having to wear the N95 all day, what honestly it wasn't all day, but because if you're in intensive care, you're in intensive care and that's just your assignment for today. And that's where you want to be. That's for some people, it was just so much easier than taking it, putting it on, taking it off, putting it on, taking it off. Um, honestly, after a while, you get used to it. It is not easy, but you do get used to it. You find which N95 works best for you, which thank God we were able to have a couple options to choose from. Um, and you just kind of hope you don't have to run anywhere because... <laughs> Because running is the worst. <laughs> You're like, if by the time I get there, I'm going to need help. <laughs> Somebody going to have to resuscitate. <laughs> like, we can't have me passing out trying to get there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So yeah, you do actually after a while because, you know, and I guess it's when you form a new habit, right? You take that amount of time, like, what is it, 90 days a and this pandemic has been over a year. So you, after a while, you just get used to it. And my husband, who's commenting, he put his surgical mask on just to go to the store. And he's like, I don't know how you do this all day. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> because I had gotten so used to it. 
It's like it just becomes second nature, you know. It's it becomes like, second nature. Yeah. So what is one situation that you encountered during the pandemic that you'll never forget? Like, oh. is there like one situation that happened where you were like, oh, my God, I cannot. Now, you asked a very heavy question. I don't know if I'm ready to answer it yet because, oh, man, this one. So. It's one thing to take care of people because you love what you do and, or you love to take care of people. It's another thing when it hits home. And there was a pastor from our church who I, I literally walked by the room and I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Walked by the room, saw the pictures and I was like, it looks familiar, but can't be. And then one of my friends, who was also an employee at our hospital, she was like, isn't that the pastor from your church? And he's not like our main pastor, but he's one of the pastors. And I was like, oh, my God. And it is just especially because I work out in like the suburbs. I don't work in the inner city where I'm used to seeing like African-Americans. I'm not used to like treating people like my own community, so to speak. And so it really, it really was hard to see him, to see him that sick, to see him alone. And he was there. He was probably one of our sickest patients. He was there over a hundred days. And I just remember like wanting to do more, but not knowing how to do more, trying to kind of stay in my position. Um, And so I kind of, because everybody kind of knew, like I was able to have his wife and our pastor on speakerphone to pray with him um, just to kind of like let them feel like there was somebody there that felt a little bit closer to home than just like the medical staff. But to see him get better, we unfortunately we got to celebrate his birthday with him because he was still there at that point. We had to kind of hit him with some tough love because he, he had a hard time getting off the ventilator, like a really hard time getting off the ventilator to the point where we were like, I don't we didn't know if he was going to make it. That's how bad it was. Um, so to see him finally get better enough because he would I, I'm probably jumping all over the place because I'm just no, like I'm reliving it. So he finally got a little better enough to be awake. And but we had to get him off the ventilator. And so he would watch the clock because we, we we manipulate the settings on the ventilator so that the patient breathes more on their own so that we can kind of start to push them a little bit harder so that they're not vent dependent. And he would watch the clock because he knew when his time was up, he wanted us to switch the settings back. And he would like call, put his light on because he's like watching the clock. And one of the other therapists went in and she's like, I know what time it is and I'm not coming in a second sooner. <laughs> <laughs> And when he finally got better enough, our hospital plays the Rocky theme song for each patient that gets better from COVID and gets discharged. And we all went outside and we stood there and we clapped and we tried not to cry because I was so happy that he finally got better. And his family came up. They were all outside, his wife, his children, his grandchildren. And we all clapped. We waited. I was like, I hope this nothing else is happening in this moment because I want to wait to see him get out of here. And he finally got out. He finally is better. Um, he's home. He's ex- He was actually at church on Sunday. And so that was one of the hardest things I probably had to experience with COVID. And I mean, and that's, I almost feel unfair saying that because so many people died. Yes. And that was hard too. It was hard to watch so many people come in and be terrified. They, to not have any clue if they were going to make it or not make it. 
and you can't tell them that they are or not because you have no clue. You literally have no idea. Like, and, and these are people who were 40s and 50s who you would think they look, they look healthy, but COVID hits everybody so differently that you literally have no idea how each patient is going to be able to handle it and take it to know if they're going to survive it or not. And I remember one day just I had this one guy, he was terrified. And I really wanted to tell him he was going to be okay, but I knew that that was going to be very unfair of me to do. And I, I said to him, can I just hold your hand? I know you haven't seen your family and you, you, nobody's been able to even touch you and give you a hug. Can I just stand here and hold your hand for a couple minutes? I just want you to know that we're here and we, we care and we're doing the best that we can. We're doing all that we can. And I didn't, I don't want, I didn't, we don't want people to, I didn't want people to feel like we were just robots. Like we were just going to come in and do what we had to do and get out. Because it can start to, you can start to get repetitive like that, especially when it's busy and there's so many sick patients. Like people do kind of come in and they do their thing and they leave. But you, when you see like that fear, because you literally, you they don't know what's happening. You know, we we are so used to it that we know we're in there to do, and you know it becomes very, very repetitive. Um, and so I enjoyed those type of moments to be able to say like, let me just stand here and hold your hand. I can. I can find a few minutes in my day to give you this because this is probably what you need more than anything else. Um, so yeah, it has been a whirlwind dealing with COVID. Yeah, I um... but it's been a blessing in disguise because it has been after 15 years of doing this, it um it felt good to feel important again as a respiratory therapist, it felt good to kind of feel like we were doing something that made a difference. And for as many people as we lost, we, we tried as hard as we could. And, and, and that was, that felt, that's fulfilling to feel like this is why I'm here. This is why I signed up for this because we want to make a difference and we're trying as hard as we can to do that. Absolutely. Because I mean, there's so many people who did not make it, you know, after contracting COVID. So I actually, uh, my best friend lost his mom, you know, and it was just one of those things where, you know, she was okay, and then she got sick, and then everything just happened so fast, oh, you know, and it, I think it just caught all of us just by surprise, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, but just to see that happen, and then to see people make light of the disease, you know, and it's kind of like, this disease is taken you know, people's lives every day. Right. So, and unfortunately, there were people who, and that became hard because there were people who ended up getting sick and coming in who took it lightly. Mm -hmm. And then you're frustrated because you're like, why didn't you take this more seriously? Because now, now we're here and we can't not be here now. And I had this one lady who was like, but I was drinking water. And I'm like, you know, part of your like, I kind of want to wring your neck, but I also feel terrible for you because you're not doing good either. <laughs> and yeah, there's so many people who, who did not take it seriously. And then we had to see those people too. And it does become an emotional like roller coaster because you're like, we're all here doing this, the best that we can for the people, for everybody. And there were people who were taking it seriously who still got sick. And then there's people who weren't. And then now here you are sick. And now we can't reverse the hands of time. Now you're sick and I don't know what's going to happen to you. And you might not make it. And it might be too late for you to take it seriously. Yeah, it's true. So do you all know, like, 
exactly what kind of happens with the lungs that makes it so difficult for the patients to be able to breathe. Because I've heard different things like the lungs may harden a little bit or, you know, so like what have you found, you know, being on the front line? What have you seen? Um, it's definitely a hardening of the lungs. Um, it's because they harden, but it's, it, it doesn't prevent this. It doesn't present the same way as like what we're used to with like a COPD patient. And so they get really hard. They get really stiff. And it takes so long to kind of figure out what's going on that um, what we've seen with some of our harder patients is the heart goes bad. So then now you're kind of fighting two battles. So now it's not even just I need to get your lungs better. It's your heart won't allow us to do what we need to do. And so now you're kind of waiting to fix one thing. But now you have this whole other issue and some patients don't weren't well enough to qualify for certain treatments that could have maybe helped them with their heart so that we can kind of help treat the lungs. Um, it's not knowing where, where the sweet spot is for the lung treatment because there's no studies done on it. So we are, we can go off of what we typically know to do for the patients that we have seen in the past, but there's no research to know if what we're doing is even working. And so that I feel like, and then there's, um, there was a lot of talk and research about blood types. And I don't want to go into that because I honestly did not take the time to research it because I was literally on the front lines doing the work. Um, and so we saw that a lot of the treatments that they were discussing weren't working for everybody. And so then what do you do when that, when those aren't working? It, it literally becomes a day to day of, Okay, we're going to have rounds. This is what we've tried already. What what else can we do? What else can we try? What else is there to, you know, to do for this patient? And and then there's a waiting game because you run out of ideas. And then now it's just a matter of let's just wait and see what happens. Like, let's try. Okay, let's try the same thing. We tried again. And maybe this might it might work this time. Okay, that didn't work again this time. We were pulling out all the stops. It was stuff that we had we typically didn't use on critical patients that we were just like throw the whole game at everybody and let's just kind of see what sticks. Yeah. And uh, I'll be interested to see the research, um, you know, maybe on down the line, like some things that they found that worked that didn't work, you know, in various yeah. countries and things like that. Um, just in case, you because know, there was, was another. There was a lot of talk of not, trying to avoid the ventilators, but then there were some patients that were either, you know, you're trying to put, when you're putting oxygen up somebody's nose and you're talking about running it at 40 liters, like it, it, if you don't understand what that feels like, it does not feel comfortable. <laughs> and so how, how long can you maintain that? Like, if you don't know when you're going to get better, that's, you know, you're asking a lot of a patient, which we understand, but it's also the patient. Some patients just can't tolerate it for so long either. And they're trying their best to do whatever they can to get themselves better. And when you're looking at days to weeks of we don't know what's going to happen, people just get tired. They get tired of, OK, flip to this side. OK, flip to that side. OK, sit up. And then you have this thing up your nose that's blowing up your nose and then we went from that to BiPAP which is like wearing a mask that's basically forcing that air into your lungs but it's also 
you know, we're getting red marks on your face. We're going from a mask that covers your nose and your mouth to one that covers your entire face. And we're switching that off every four hours. And some people just, they can't, they're, they're so tired and they get so weak because now you're not eating. You know, you're not hydrating. We're giving you fluids, but it's just a total different ball game. So how much of that can you tolerate? Because those were some of the things in the beginning that it was like, okay, avoid the veteran as much as we possibly can. But then it's kind of like, we can't avoid them, but so long. And then you end up having to kind of make a decision because you're like, well, what else is there for me to do? Because we we have we had patients that were one floor was you're on this amount of oxygen. And then if, if it increased, we put you on this floor. And then from there, you ended up in intensive care. And then if you have patients because because they're terrified, they have anxiety. And so that's going to make them breathe even worse because they don't know what's happening. So if you go from saying, oh, you were fine on just this little tiny bit of oxygen to, okay, we're going to switch you to this. Now they're like, am I okay? And, and, you're, and, and you're trying to tell them you will, be, maybe you will be if you can calm down a little bit. But that's way easier said than done. Way easier said than done. And so, yeah, it, I'll be interested to see what they find now that we've lived through this for a year and we have a, a lot more um, patients that they can kind of study to see what they think will work best in these situations. Yes. Oh, so also, too, um, like you were mentioning earlier, you said that they start to have heart problems. A lot of people don't realize, too, that your heart and your lungs pretty much go hand in hand with each other. You know, one works with the other. And so it's it's just interesting to see that, you know, first they have the lung issues and then immediately after, or the heart issue and the lung right. issues together. So, um, so you all- okay first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh, so yeah. So tell us about your husband's spinal cord, Andrew. Let's kind of tap into that a little bit. Um, so what happened to him for him to get the spinal cord? So when my husband was 17 years old, he was leaving work. He worked at Burlington Co. Factory. Um, he was getting off work and it was probably, I think he said about like 7 p.m., um, 7 or 8-ish maybe. He was getting off the bus. He was within walking distance of his home and a group of kids who were in the car looking for something stupid to do decided they were going to attempt to rob him. And in their attempt to rob him, he went to run to try to get home and they shot him and it paralyzed him from the waist down. But because they weren't able to take out one of the bullets, the swelling from it um, increased his injury level to his nipple line. So he had no sensation from the nipple line down and also decreased sensation in his left arm. Wow. And um, so when he did undergo surgery, what exactly did they do? in that surgery since they couldn't remove the fragment did they have to put plates in or anything like that that's a great question i actually don't know it's <laughs> <laughs> a great question i actually do not know okay no no i just ask you but um because you know oh, he said he answered <laughs> okay let me see let me see what oh, did he, he said surgery? Uh, he said he never had surgery they couldn't do anything Oh, okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I know sometimes when the bullet is too close to the spinal cord, you know, they just won't touch it at all in fear that, you know, it'll cause, you know, death or even some more. Yeah, I'm, a po I'm a post-injury wife. I met him post yeah. his injury. So there's some questions I just never asked. <laughs> <laughs> so 
But like, what are some things that you have to kind of help them with? Um, just kind of, you know, just from day to day. Um, so day to day, um, the the political answer would be: I help him get dressed, I help him get washed, I help feed him. Um, but honestly, my husband is amazing, and there is actually a, a significant amount of things off the record that he can do on his own. <laughs> um, but while I am here. We I help him with transfers. Um, cause they can get a little tough sometimes. I, um, you know, he can't reach cabinet. So there's always that. Um, I do help him get dressed in that because he physically always needs help because sometimes he just doesn't know what to put on. <laughs> yeah. They never know. What to put. Um, well, he actually just had surgery. What are we week four post-surgery? He had to get part of his hip bone removed okay. because he had an, an infection in his bone that um, we could not treat without removing part of this, the hip bone and because he had an open wound, it was a stage four. So it went from the outside of the skin all the way to his bone. And so um, we had dealt with that for two years. So he actually just get, um, he just had surgery to kind of fix that issue. And um, so now I'm doing everything. Well. He's getting better. But in the beginning, it was pretty much everything. He couldn't, he wasn't allowed to get up. He would only get up for an hour a day. So cooking, cleaning, laundry, bowel regimen, everything he needs help with. And then the the kid, which who he typically watches when I go to work because he's that amazing. Yeah. So Mr. Harris, since I know you're out there watching. What are some challenges that you have had since experiencing um, your spinal cord injury? Because I don't know if I told you this yet, but I am actually a chiropractor. And so, you know, we see people with all different types of injuries and, you know, pre post surgery, things of that nature. So I'm always curious when I hear, you know, stories like this, when they talk about, you know, spinal cord injuries and things of that nature. So I'll be looking for that response, Mr. Harris. <laughs> you want to yell or you want to type? <laughs> He's going to type. But I will say one of the things he does have issues with is spasms, muscle spasms, which is funny because our three-year-old thinks that he's like faking it sometimes. But she's like, look, your leg just went. <laughs> like, no, baby, I did not try to do that. <laughs> so do we have to go through like physical therapy and all that good stuff um after yeah, he's getting physical therapy so he had physical therapy before um and he's getting physical therapy now to help him with the surgery because he doesn't want to lose all of like what he had prior to the surgery yes. so i'm sure you know but for our, our audience that is watching every day that he spends in the bed is about the same as able-bodied people spending a week in bed so, so that he doesn't get too weak from not being able to move around. He is doing physical therapy now. Yes. Cause if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Yes. The burns. So one of the things I should be doing that I don't do is skin checks. Okay. Because he gets burns and bruises. He just told me the other day, I'm sorry to both our mothers who are watching this. He told me the other day, he didn't realize he slept on a butter knife. I need to do a little bit better as checking. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he was fine, but it's just, it's those type of things that you don't think about that, you know, we just went through two stage four wounds that we don't want to do this again. So yeah, yeah. having to stay on top of checking his skin. Cause one of the things is that he gets really um, like cold mm -hmm. and he gets like the chills and his body starts to sweat, which you would, it doesn't really make sense to like able-bodied people, 
Um, so he kind of spends a lot of time in front of a space heater and we end up with burns. So I have to hopefully avoid the burns. Yes. I don't want to deal with those anymore either. And with the loss of sensation, does he have like difficult like lifting his arms at all? Or is it just when I think um, it's just being able to feel, yeah. Just being able like he can use it because he's able he's he's he does drive. He's able to lift his chair. So when he drives and he's by himself, he can get his chair into the car himself. He can I almost forget. Um <laughs> But yeah, he will. Ha he does have decreased sensation, so he can have the potential to burn himself and not realize that he burned himself. <laughs> okay. So, six more compressions. He's wearing my work socks. <laughs> so, did they tell him that he'll never be able to walk again, or is it one of those things that they just don't know, and you know, you know, they just have to wait and see progression? I they told him he'll never be able to walk again, but I hear him typing. Okay. <laughs> you know, they say that, but then you know, you see people who who eventually do at some point. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. She asked if they told you you'd never be able to walk again. No, he said he won't. Okay. Miracle in the prayer? Yes. Okay. And it's interesting because I think like sometimes we, we we think about that, but then it's like we, we, we've had conversations like if you walked again, what do you think it would be like if you walked again? Do you think you would have like braces? Like, would it be easier to walk again or would it be easier to do what you've been doing for so long at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I just I pray that he continues to just, you know, live his life to his fullest potential, That's you know, good. because. It's just, it's just amazing that what you can do when life kind of throws you curveballs, you know what I mean? And it's, it's just amazing how we can just, um, I don't, I don't know the word that I'm looking for, but just how we can just, you know, progress through life and just, you know, just make the best out of what has been given to us, basically. You know yeah. what I mean? Things, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but one of the things that he's been working on is taking his power back and mm -hmm. like kind of like really embracing like having full control over his spinal cord injury that it doesn't control him. That is not something that he has to navigate his life around. But it's as a, instead, it's just like, this is my life and this is a part of my life and this is a part of who I am, but I'm going to have complete power over it so that it doesn't really kind of dictate who I am and how I operate and how like I think about things and how I approach things. And that's actually part of why we started our YouTube channel was to kind of like show people that never give up hope, um, you know, to kind of live a full life and to do it and have fun if you can in doing it. Um, and so that's hopefully what we're, we're that's what we're trying to teach people is to kind of like have fun, live your life. And especially with the pandemic, that's when we started it, when the pandemic hit, because it was his birthday and then we were all shut down and we were like, all right, if we're going to do this, let's just do it now and get people something to watch. Yeah. <laughs> something to laugh at. And, you know, just kind of hopefully we can kind of, you know, teach people like we're all here doing this together. And if you kind of lose hope and you kind of lose focus and, you know, you need somebody to kind of, you know, remind you of why this life is worth living, 
watch an episode, follow us on social media, and hopefully we can give you something to laugh at or something to think about that can kind of give you a little bit more pep in your step and a little bit more inspiration, so to speak, to kind of keep you going through whatever your circumstances, because it could be something completely different. But, you know, the struggle is going to always be there of how do I, you know, wake up every day and remember that this life is worth living and I'm going to do it fully and I'm not going to do it and be miserable in doing it. Yeah. Because you know what? We struggle with that every day, regardless of if we've had major injuries. Right. Or not. You know what I mean? We struggle with that on just a day to day basis. So the fact that you guys have a show that can keep people encouraged despite their circumstances, I think is just awesome. And so if you guys have not looked already, their social media is Harris Hope and Humor. And you can find them on Facebook, Instagram, as well as YouTube. So um, definitely look into um, their channel and like, follow, subscribe, and share. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tierra, I just want to thank you so much um, for coming on the show tonight. Do you have any last final remarks that you want to leave with the viewers tonight? Um. I think the last thing I want to say, well, I want to thank everybody for watching and tuning in because I didn't tell anybody about this until my husband (laughs) told everybody today. And I see all of the comments of my friends and my family. (laughs) So I appreciate y'all showing up and showing out. Um, But I think one of the things that I want to say is everybody knows how busy my life is and how I juggle everything. And, um, you know, remember to make time for yourself. Remember to slow down. Remember, you know, it's, it's, it's doable. It's just putting a balance on it. And so I think that's it. Yes. Do what makes you happy. Do what brings you joy. And in doing that, you'll find it to be a little bit easier. It's not going to always be easy, but it'll be a little bit easier if you enjoy what it is that you're doing that keeps you busy. Yes. Uh, Tyrese, the singer, he has a book called How to Get Out of Your Own Way. And he actually talks about that. So if you guys are looking for a pick me up or inspirational book, I like to listen to the audio books. I download them on um, Audible, which is by Amazon. But um, definitely uh, download that book and just listen to it. He has a lot of nice gems in there um, because a lot of times it's us that's holding ourselves back. You know what I mean? So, you know, I just want to throw that in there. <laughs> I love um, this. I have to look, look for that one next. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, again, I'm Dr. Glory Stone Osbeck. Make sure you guys tune in every Monday night at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We have a new guest every week. Um, you can uh, follow, like, subscribe and share Random Health Ish on all platforms. Also, I wanted to throw a little plug in there. I also have a nonprofit. It's called Chiro Health Missions. Um, and we have a scholarship for Black or Hispanic female high school seniors. We are raising money to be able to give them a scholarship so that they can use towards their books, their tuition, um, their, you know, just buying things that they need for their dorms, just to prepare for their upcoming freshman year. So if you feel it on your heart to donate, um, you can donate on this website, ChiroHealthMissions.com. Um, or you can inbox me or, you know, if you have any questions, you can um, email me at chirohealthmissions uh, at gmail.com. That's fine as well. Um, so I hope to got, see you guys next week. And you guys have a good evening. Good night. Bye. <laughs>